a huge political finding in the past several years has been the high level of support white evangelical Christians have shown toward Donald Trump, the former occupier of the White House. In 2016, 81% of white evangelical voters supported Trump, and around 76% of them voted for him in 2020. But the other noteworthy feature when it comes to support for Trump was that a majority of Caucasian women supported him in 2016 and reportedly in 2020. For some, it's perplexing that a man who has been known to cheat on all his wives has bragged about sexual assault and has made it a point to denigrate women who have criticized him would gain the support of the majority of white women. Not once, but twice. And not only that, the January 6th insurrection was not only perpetrated by white men, but white women were involved as well. The exception to the conservative rule that police should be supported, they have tough jobs, blue lives matter, comply, don't resist, is notably the death of Ashley Babbitt, a white female insurrectionist who was shot by police while attempting to jump over the barricade to potentially attack members of Congress and the Vice President. I mention these two facts regarding Trump's support because on some level, these facts need to be considered together. Some of the more conservative voices within evangelical Christianity believe that women should vote just like their husbands. Popular conservative blogger Jesse Sumter wrote a post in October 2020 instructing Christian men to, quote, make sure your wife votes exactly like you, end quote. He based this stance on a few Bible passages, including Ephesians 5, 24 and Titus 2, 5, that state that wives should submit to their husbands. He gave several reasons for this, including the oneness of the married couple, avoiding canceling out each other's vote, and what I think is the most interesting one, that by voting differently, the husband is setting up his wife to be unprotected. He then gave an illustration of what he means by this. He says, quote, run the scenario, you as the husband vote third party and your wife votes for Trump. At the next get together, people are talking about who they voted for. You say third party and your wife says Trump. All eyes turn to her and ask her, why did you vote for Trump? Defend that position. And there you are as the guy left to drink punch alone in the corner while your wife tries to fend off the accusations. It is foolishness on the husband's part to leave his wife vulnerable." End quote. You know, I've been doing Pastor Podcasts for four years and have been learning, teaching, and involved in politics for much longer. I can't say that I've ever felt vulnerable by being asked about my vote choices or by defending my voting decisions. Whether Chuckles and I agree politically or not, I've never felt the need to have him justify my stances or vote choices to other people. And I don't need to defend his voting decisions either, because we're both adults. I swear, some of these evangelicals see women as children they're legally allowed to sleep with. Sumter's view is pretty conservative, but it's not really a fringe view, at least in the evangelical tradition. It's often taught, or if not explicitly taught, definitely implied. Some evangelical leaders teach that unmarried women should vote like their fathers, as they believe a father covers their daughter until they marry. For many evangelicals, marriage, specifically heterosexual marriage, is often taught as the preferred goal of one's life. Get married, have a family, create more Christians to dominate numerically and politically. And at the more extreme end, with movements such as Quiverful, the goal is to outpopulate Islam and other religions and implicitly buck against the so-called Great Replacement, the white supremacist belief that white people are being replaced by people of color through immigration, 
and higher birth rates. In the United States, white people are expected to be less than half of the population by around 2045, and statistically, white evangelicals are less likely to support increased diversity than other groups, including other groups of white people. Here's the thing. In what conservative evangelicals view as their perfect world, an evangelical man's vote would be multiplied in impact due to the women in their lives voting as they do. This model of voting removes both autonomy and responsibility from women for their choices. And maybe that's the point. In this model, supporting the power of men, typically white evangelical men, is the goal. That said, does this account for all white women's support of Donald Trump? Oh no. Many supported Trump because of their political stances and their own prioritization of issues. But I bring it up because it speaks to the history of women's voting rights in the United States. The story of gender and voting rights is really a story of intersectionality. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. In the previous episode of the Voter Suppression Series, I discussed the history of race and ethnicity as it relates to voting rights in the United States. If you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that episode, episode 90, definitely check that out. In this episode, let's talk a bit about women. In the past several decades, the gender gap has been highlighted by political scientists, pollsters, and news outlets. The gender gap meaning the divide, the difference between women and men when it comes to partisanship and vote choice. Women being more likely to identify with the Democratic Party and support Democrats. Men being more likely to support the Republican Party and support Republicans. But when we look at the gender gap, part of it is gender. Even when controlling for factors such as race and religion, there is generally a difference between women and men but it's usually just a matter of degree. For example, black women are more likely than black men to identify as Democrats and vote for Democratic candidates. But among black Americans generally, both men and women overwhelmingly say they're Democrats and support Democratic politicians. When we parse out the gender gap, it's not as simple as women are more liberal than men. It's not all that straightforward. For example, married women tend to be more conservative politically than unmarried women. Race and religion matter as well. So does education and socioeconomic class. What I'm getting at here is intersectionality. When I talk about intersectionality, what I'm talking about is the interplay among the various identities that people have and the ways that these identities provide a certain level of privilege and oppression based on context. So, for example, being black and being female, those are considered marginalized categories in American society based on race and sex, respectively. But I'm also cisgender, I identify as my sex assigned at birth, and I'm a Christian. Those identities are privileged in our society. Privilege in this context means that I can take being cis for granted, and my Christian faith, in a general sense, is accommodated by our society as the default or majority religion. Any difficulties, any adversity, I can pretty much guarantee is not because I'm cisgender, nor because I'm a Christian. Does it mean that others can't be prejudiced based on those identities? No, it doesn't mean that. But in our society, the impact of that prejudice will likely be minimal at best. While intersectionality seems to be, for some, a bit of a buzzword, it truly matters because when it comes to gender, 
How voting rights have played out is related to a number of other identities. And as we continue, it'll be clear that the experience of being a woman in the United States in the fight for suffrage or the right to vote was varied based on other identities. When it came to the right to vote, what that journey looked like was not universal to all women, and priorities were not universal either. This is why, unlike some other groups, we can't really look at women as a single voting block. So, let's get started. The U.S. Constitution, which was written in 1787 and completed ratification in 1789, did not specifically call out women, but it did make a distinction between males and persons. White women were counted as full humans for the purposes of congressional representation and taxation purposes, but were not provided voting rights. And I'll explain in a bit why that was the case. Citizenship and voting rights in the United States are not, and never have been, one and the same. And this goes beyond the obvious that children may have citizenship but can't vote. Even when discussing people who have made it to the age of majority, there is a distinction. Citizenship is a prerequisite for voting rights, but being a citizen doesn't automatically guarantee the right to vote. Even if you're a citizen, voting rights have never been explicitly guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. Let's briefly discuss citizenship first. Citizenship in the U.S., in the early part of American history, was primarily based on race rather than sex. White women were eligible for citizenship from the founding, but this wasn't the case for women of other races. Black Americans were in a contested space for much of the time prior to the Civil War. In the South, Black Americans weren't seen as citizens at all. Most were slaves. Slavery in the United States meant you were considered property and legally a non-person. Slaves were bought and sold, husbands split from wives, parents split from children. The enslaved were restrained and constrained, abused, violated, and enslaved women were forced to have the children of their enslavers. Even free black people were subject to pre-Civil War black codes that restricted their freedom and denied them of various rights. As for free states, or states that didn't allow slavery, the rights of black people were sort of in a gray area. They weren't enslaved, but they weren't considered equal and their rights varied state by state. The thing is, while the U.S. Constitution did speak to slavery in terms of how slaves were counted for representation and taxation purposes, see the Three-Fifths Compromise, the Constitution was largely silent on Black Americans and their citizenship status. This meant that it was up to the courts to interpret. In the Dred Scott v. Sanford U.S. Supreme Court decision of 1857, the opinion of the court, written by Chief Justice Roger Taney, stated that people of African descent were not considered U.S. citizens according to the U.S. Constitution, and he wrote that black people, quote, had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, end quote. This would be case law in precedent until the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868, three years after the Civil War, which removed racial restrictions to birthright citizenship, and in so doing, affirmed the citizenship of black Americans. As for Native Americans, generally speaking, the U.S. government did not recognize the 14th Amendment as applying to them, and their workaround to exclude indigenous people was that due to the existence of indigenous tribal governments, Native Americans were considered citizens of those governments and not of the United States. This, while systematically forcing them off their lands, pushing them to less hospitable lands in other parts of the country, and committing genocide against them. The Scott v. Sanford decision also addressed Native American citizenship, stating that they could become citizens only through naturalization, so they were treated as immigrants. 
Essentially, indigenous people would have to permanently live among the white population and assimilate into white society in order to obtain U.S. citizenship. Indigenous Americans didn't have birthright citizenship available to them until the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, also known as the Snyder Act. This allowed for indigenous people to be U.S. citizens from birth, and they would no longer have to disavow tribal citizenship in order to do so. Now, for Asian Americans and Latino Americans, citizenship rights largely depended on their country of origin. For example, Mexicans living in parts of present-day Arizona, California, New Mexico, Texas, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah that had previously been part of Mexico became U.S. citizens as part of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 that ended the Mexican-American War. Also, the Nationality Act of 1940 and later the Immigration Act of 1952 allowed Asian groups a pathway to citizenship through naturalization. But again, citizenship and voting rights are two completely different things. Let's discuss voting rights. At the founding, the U.S. Constitution did not specifically enshrine the franchise as a right of all citizens. Elections were, and still are, the purview of states, meaning that individual states determine eligibility to vote in elections. As I mentioned in Part 1, initially the vote was restricted to white men, in most cases white men who owned land, but over time, state by state, the land ownership requirement was dropped. Prior to the Civil War, in the North, some black men could vote but in places like New Jersey, this was rolled back. Now, most black people lived in the South at the time and most were enslaved. So, for the most part, regardless of sex, black Americans could not vote. And restrictions were in place in several states denying the franchise to Mexican Americans and other people of color. As for white women during this time period, while their citizenship status was never in doubt, their citizenship did not grant them the right to vote. Why were these women kept from voting? In large part, this was due to a concept called coverture. Coverture was a legal concept that a woman's rights were merged with that of her husband. In other words, a married man represented not only himself, but the interests of his wife and children in the eyes of the law. While unmarried women were often given some limited autonomy, such as the right to enter into contracts or inherit property, but if she married, she would lose that autonomy and everything would fall under the ownership of her husband, including any property or assets she brought into the marriage. Because there was a lot of social pressure, even more so than today, to marry and bear children, and an unmarried woman's autonomy was still not to the same degree as an unmarried man, most women still got married, even though any freedom she did have would be lost. Divorce was also less common, and women had everything to lose in divorce. Alimony, spousal support, may only be provided to a woman if the husband was found by the court to be at fault for the divorce. Keep in mind that no-fault divorce was a long, long way off in the future. Coverture was one of the major justifications to keep women away from the ballot box. Why should women vote if her husband represented her when he voted? The other major reason was because of the widespread belief in separate spheres. The separate spheres referenced were private and public life, private and public spheres. In popular culture during this time, women were considered in charge of private life, meaning domestic life. Women were responsible for child rearing, for keeping the home neat and tidy, for making sure food was on the table for her husband, for entertaining guests, and making the husband look good. Public life, or the public sphere, was the domain of men. Men were seen as responsible for working outside the home whether it was as someone who owned his own business or worked for wages. Men joined the military. Men ran the government. Men would choose who ran government. This was supported by not only religion, but
but by the science at the time. Biological determinism was a belief that people behave according to their genes. In reference to this, men and women, according to this theory, are inherently different, and their differences made women more suitable for childcare and keeping up the home, and men more suitable for public life, including work, government, and business. This belief persisted throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. When it came to voting, due to this idea of separate spheres, women, as the fairer sex, were discouraged from focusing on political matters, and the belief was that women would be tainted by getting involved in politics, whether it was running for office or even voting. Even back then, politics was viewed as a dirty game. But fairly early on, women began fighting to secure the right to vote. The movement for woman suffrage was one that was being built over the course of decades, stemming in part from other social movements. During the 1800s, prior to the Civil War, women, black and white, were involved in abolitionism, the movement to end slavery. These women saw parallels between the legal standing of the enslaved and their own standing and wanted to claim a voice for themselves as well as those they were seeking to free. Suffragists who came from the abolitionist movement included Sojourner Truth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony. There was also a strain of Christianity in the early 1800s that was pretty progressive for its time that sought for equality of the sexes, including women's right to vote. Many were from the Religious Society of Friends, better known as the Quakers, a Protestant sect united by the belief in the ability of each and every person to access and experience the inward light, or the light of God. Quakers have been noted for their conscientious objector status in war, but are also fairly diverse theologically. Many woman suffrage activists were Quaker, including Anthony, Lucretia Mott, and later suffragists such as Alice Paul. Woman suffrage was part of a larger movement in support of women's rights. The right to vote was an albeit controversial plank in first-wave feminism, which I'll get into shortly. Of course, the movement's contemporaries didn't call it that, but there were several organized efforts made in favor of women's rights in the Americas, Europe, and in other areas of the globe touched by Western colonization during the 19th and early 20th centuries. And this movement included women's right to vote. So while this episode is focused on the effort in the United States, it's important to be aware that this was part of a larger movement towards women's rights in many locations around the globe during this time period. In the United States, the movement for women's voting rights, much like the first wave of feminism more generally, tended to center around more privileged classes of women. Most of the leaders involved in women's suffrage advocacy, regardless of race, were middle-class to wealthy women who were more educated than the average woman of their day. Most were well-off white women, but even many of the black women involved in the movement were from middle-to-upper-class families. There were exceptions, such as Sojourner Truth, who was a former slave and didn't have formal education, but for the most part, those involved in the women's suffrage movement were at least fairly well healed. I point this out for a couple of reasons. First of all, much like today, political involvement had opportunity costs. Many women of this time period were typically tasked with many duties at home and did not have time to devote to activism. Many women of the poor and working class, especially women of color, tended to have jobs outside the home, whether it was working on the farm alongside family members or working as a laundry attendant or domestic or other jobs that were available to women, many women of the lower classes simply did not have time to devote to advocate on their own behalf. And that meant that the women who did have the time for activism focused on issues that were near and dear to their hearts. Some of those issues were relevant to the lower classes but others not so much, and in turn issues that were important to lower classes, but not for the middle and upper classes, 
were often overlooked in their activism. The second reason this is important is that class, together with race and sex, fuel tension within the movement. As we'll talk about in more detail shortly, many white leaders of the women's suffrage movement felt comfortable with black participants as long as they fit a certain mold. Those who had been slaves, those who did not have formal education, those who fit that mold were more acceptable to a white public that viewed financially well-off, educated black women and men as a threat. The less educated former slaves were the types of black people they viewed as knowing their place. And many of the more well-off, educated black suffragists, who, by the way, were more likely to participate in the women's suffrage movement since they were more likely to have the time and resources to do so, also tended to challenge the aims and direction of the movement in a way that made white suffragists uncomfortable. It's a familiar theme that seems to come up a lot in interracial coalitions. Some white activists are willing to work with black activists as long as those black activists don't advocate for themselves or demand policy changes that make them uncomfortable. For example, the current movement against police brutality and the policy demand to defund and abolish the police. I discussed that more in depth in the policing series I released last summer, so if you haven't done so and you're wanting to hear more on that, definitely take a listen to that. In 1848, the Women's Rights Convention, known today as the Seneca Falls Convention, was held in Seneca Falls, New York. This was the first women's rights convention in the United States. It was organized by Stanton and Mott, as well as Mary McClintock, Martha Coffin Wright, and Jane Hunt. There were about 300 attendees, both men and women, all white, with the exception of abolitionist Frederick Douglass. At Seneca Falls, the organizers unveiled the Declaration of Sentiments, a document written in the style of the Declaration of Independence, outlining 19, quote, abuses and usurpations, end quote, ways in which women were treated unequally and forced into confined gender roles in various areas of public life, including their legal status, standing and treatment in the legal system, and ability to participate fully in politics, outside employment, and religion. To address these 19 grievances, 11 resolutions were proposed. These were potential changes that, if implemented by government, industry, religious institutions, and society, would allow women equality. All 11 were supported overwhelmingly, with the notable exception of the ninth resolution, which called for women to secure the right to vote. This resolution was hotly contested, with attendees speaking out on both sides. Notably, Douglas spoke in favor of this resolution. And keep in mind, this was before black men had the right to vote enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. The ninth resolution passed narrowly, and at the time, led to some women's rights groups splitting from groups supporting women's suffrage. But over time, Women's suffrage would come to be the defining issue in what we now call the first wave feminist movement. Several national women's rights conventions would be held over the next couple of decades and would increasingly focus on women's suffrage. One of the things that tends to get left out of a lot of popular narratives in regards to the women's suffrage movement and the first wave women's movement in general is the diversity of the movement, yet the tension within it. People of color were deeply involved in the women's suffrage movement. Black activists such as Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, sisters Harriet Fortin Purvis and Margareta Fortin, Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, Sarah Parker Riemann, indigenous activists such as Suzette Lafleche Tibbles, Marie Louise Batneau Baldwin, and Zakala Sa. And there were many others. These are names we don't hear as often as Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott, or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And this, on some level, was by design. Even in the midst of the women's suffrage movement, while leaders such as Anthony Stanton and Matilda Jocelyn Gage were actively writing black suffragists out of the narrative. 
They authored the history of women's suffrage beginning in 1876 as part of the National Women's Suffrage Association, compiling primary documents, speeches, letters, commentary, and recollections. The work was then continued by Ida Husted Harper and Anthony Associate as a collaboration and then completed after Anthony's death. While this anthology was collected over the course of four decades and has a wealth of information about the movement, it was incomplete as it primarily recorded aspects of the movement these activists and their associates were involved in. One of, the one of the gaps that existed was that the anthology downplayed and in some cases outright ignored the contributions of suffragists of color. This was reflected in the near erasure of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, as well as other black and indigenous suffragists. This tension would continue throughout the lifetime of the woman suffrage movement and would be heightened by an event that would pit brother against brother and lead to divides within the United States that would continue for generations. Between 1861 and 1865 was the Civil War, and I discussed it more in depth in other episodes, including part one of this series. The war would eventually spell the end of legalized, explicit chattel slavery as an institution in the United States. It didn't mean the end of slavery like institutions in practice, whether it was tenant farming in the South or the use of the prison system as a form of enslavement, which was the notable exception to the 13th Amendment, which otherwise did end slavery. The end of slavery meant, among other things, the Reconstruction Amendments. These amendments were the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. As I just discussed, the 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, ended slavery under most circumstances. The other two dealt with the questions of citizenship and voting. For the sake of this particular topic, the 14th Amendment, which, as I talked about earlier, was ratified in 1868, granted birthright citizenship to those previously excluded from it, such as Black Americans, extended the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, which spell out the rights of Americans in relation to the federal government, to the states, and declared the right to vote to all male citizens 21 years of age or older. The 15th Amendment, which was added to the Constitution in 1870, was the first to explicitly address race and the right to vote. While it did not explicitly guarantee a blanket right to vote, it did state that voting rights could not be restricted or outright barred on the basis of race, color, or as it states, quote, previous condition of servitude, end quote. In other words, whether or not an individual has been a slave. So the idea was that black men now had the right to vote. The language of the Reconstruction Amendments did not sit well with many activists in the women's suffrage movement for a couple of reasons. First of all, the 14th Amendment in particular was the first time that voting rights were explicitly addressed in the U.S. Constitution and the wording of this was gendered. Voting rights were guaranteed to men. This was viewed as a setback to the movement for women's suffrage. Because prior to the 14th Amendment, the reason why the vote was restricted to men was due to state statutes rather than federal law, let alone the U.S. Constitution, considered to be the law of the land, along with treaties. This meant that at this point, for women to gain the right to vote, Specific language would need to be included in the U.S. Constitution that would grant women that right. Women's rights advocate Elizabeth Cady Stanton lamented in regards to this, quote, If that word male be inserted, it will take us a century at least to get it out, end quote. The other reason for the controversy is because black men obtained the right to vote before white women. While many women suffrage supporters were also abolitionists, the belief that slavery should be abolished was not the same as believing that black people were equal to whites and should receive the same rights across the board. Among white abolitionists, there were a range of beliefs in regards to racial equality and not all viewed black people as their equals. 
Now, I discussed in part one how despite the Reconstruction Amendments, many states, especially in the South, found ways around these amendments in order to bar black people from voting and holding public office. So while it meant that many black men, particularly in the southern states where a majority of black people lived, couldn't actually vote, the mere fact that on paper they could bothered many of the white women leading the women's suffrage movement, and it lit an additional fire under them to secure their own right to vote. There was a divide among white women suffrage activists as to whether or not to support the Reconstruction Amendments. Stanton and Anthony objected to these amendments, maintaining that women should have been provided voting rights alongside black men. Stanton voiced her antipathy towards the amendments publicly at a convention in 1869. A quick content warning for racist and xenophobic language. Quote, Think of Patrick and Sambo and Hans and Jung Tung, who do not know the difference between a monarchy and a republic, who never read the Declaration of Independence or Webster's Spelling Book, making laws for Lydia Marie Child, Lucretia Mott, or Fanny Campbell, end quote. She went on to say that the amendment, quote, creates an antagonism everywhere between educated, refined women and the lower orders of men, especially in the South, end quote. This statement left abolitionist and suffragist Frederick Douglass feeling betrayed, as he had supported women's voting rights for decades alongside abolitionism, but Stanton was unwilling to reciprocate when it came to the Reconstruction Amendments. But others, like Lucy B. Stone, supported the amendments, and she believed that women weren't far behind in securing the franchise. As for black suffragists, many increasingly sought to ensure black women were included in the franchise. It wasn't simply for the sake of having a say in governance or being able to do something men could do. It was a matter of affecting change for their communities. Communities that had just been freed from enslavement, but in the coming decades would still face discrimination, segregation, and anti-black violence such as lynchings and race riots. The 1866 National Women's Rights Convention saw the creation of the American Equal Rights Association, or ERA. It was an interracial, mixed-sex coalition that involved Stanton, Anthony, Douglas, Truth, and Stone. While promising, this would be short-lived, for obvious reasons. This convention also included a speech given by the black suffragist Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. In her speech... Harper called out white suffragists for working to obtain the right to vote for themselves while disregarding black women and maintained that we are all connected. She said, quote, We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity, and society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. End quote. She went on to say, quote, I do not believe that giving the woman the ballot is immediately going to cure all the ills of life. I do not believe that white women are dewdrops just exhaled from the skies. I think that like men, they may be divided into three classes, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. The good will vote according to their convictions and principles, the bad as dictated by prejudice or malice, and the indifferent will vote on the strongest side of the question with the winning party, end quote. And Harper closed her speech by discussing an incident involving abolitionist and Underground Railroad conductor Harriet Tubman. She said, quote, We have a woman in our country who has received the name of Moses, not by lying about it, but by acting it out a woman who has gone down into the Egypt of slavery and brought out hundreds of our people into liberty. The last time I saw that woman, her hands were swollen. That woman who had led one of Montgomery's most successful expeditions, who was brave enough and secretive enough to act as a scout for the American army, had her hands all swollen from a conflict with a brutal conductor who undertook to eject her from her place. 
That woman whose courage and bravery won a recognition from our army and from every black man in the land is excluded from every thoroughfare of travel. Talk of giving women the ballot box? Go on. It is a normal school, and the white women of this country need it. While there exists this brutal element in society which tramples upon the feeble and treads down the weak, I tell you that if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it is the white women of America. End quote. In large part due to the Civil War and the division over the Reconstruction Amendments, the woman suffrage movement was split into two organizations with different approaches. The National Woman Suffrage Association, or NWSA, was founded in 1869 and led by Stanton and Anthony. This group, like the leaders involved, opposed the 15th Amendment and wanted a constitutional amendment granting women the right to vote, and also focused on other women's rights issues such as the right to education and divorce. This group was considered the more radical of the two. The other group was the American Women's Suffrage Association, or AWSA. Also started in 1869, leaders included Stone, her husband Henry Brown Blackwell, Julia Ward Howe, Mary Livermore, and Henry Ward Beecher. This group included both sexes and focused solely on the right to vote. Both groups were combined in 1890 as the National American Woman Suffrage Association, which was negotiated by Alice Stone Blackwell, daughter of Lucy Stone. The idea was to combine the efforts of these groups to bring about the best of both worlds, to work to pass laws supporting women's suffrage in the states, and also towards a constitutional amendment guaranteeing women the right to vote nationwide. But the NAWSA had a tenuous, at best, relationship with black women. The national group allowed in some black members on a limited basis, but the state and local organizations had autonomy over membership and many excluded black people from joining. Because of the exclusion of black Americans, especially black women, from much of the women's suffrage movement, black suffragists sought to organize their own organizations in order to include black women in the fight for women's suffrage and to advocate for issues that affected black Americans, such as Jim Crow segregation, lynching, and economic empowerment. One of the top leaders on this front was Mary Church Terrell. Mary Church was born in 1863 to former slaves who were classified as mulatto, an outdated word for mixed race. While her parents had been enslaved, their partial white parentage did provide them some advantages, and both were successful small business owners and prominent members of the black community in Memphis, Tennessee. Her father, Robert Church, invested in real estate and was said to be the first black American millionaire in the South. Her mother, Louisa Ayers, was said to be one of the first black American women to start up and run their own beauty salon. Mary was sent away from the Jim Crow South up to Ohio to attend a private Christian school because there was better education available for well-off black students up there. After receiving her childhood education, she would go on to Oberlin College, graduating with a bachelor's degree in 1884. After taking two years off on a trip to Europe, she went back to Oberlin, earning a master's. She taught language courses at Wilberforce University and later at a black high school in Washington, D.C. There, she would meet and later marry her husband, Robert Herberton Terrell, a lawyer who would eventually become a municipal judge. The couple would make their home in the Washington, D.C. area. Passionate about voting rights for women as part of an overall commitment to civil rights activism, Mary Church Terrell joined the NAWSA, advocating for the voting rights of black women. Yet she felt she could do more in organizations focused on black women. As discussed earlier, there was tension between white and black activists within the movement, and black women were sort of kept at arm's length. So in the 1890s, she started the Colored Women's League in D.C. A few years later, along with Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin and Helen Apo Cook, she helped to form the National Association of Colored Women, 
or NACW, becoming the organization's first president. Yet Terrell was still in communication with white-led women's rights groups, continuing to attend NAWSA meetings and drawing attention to the struggles of black women on two fronts. In 1904, Terrell was invited to speak at the International Congress of Women in Berlin, Germany, as not only the only black woman speaker, but also the only black woman attendee. She gave her speech there in German and French as well as in English, and received a standing ovation. She was also involved in organizing for the Republican Party during this period and participated in the early civil rights movement, writing for several journals and magazines, and signing the charter establishing the NAACP in 1909. The woman suffrage movement continued to move on along several lines by different leaders, focusing on state suffrage, a constitutional amendment, and the enfranchisement of women of color. Throughout the late 1800s and the first couple of decades into the 20th century, the woman suffrage movement used several methods to advance the cause of women's voting rights. This included speaking tours, petitions, peaceful protests, court challenges, and civil disobedience. Women such as Susan B. Anthony voted illegally and then were jailed for doing so. And women involved in protests were sometimes heckled, arrested, and even beaten. These efforts began to pay off for the woman suffrage movement. The state-by-state efforts seemed to show signs of success first. Wyoming was the first state to allow woman suffrage in 1869, and western states were some of the first to allow women the vote. Four of them before the turn of the 20th century, and several more allowed women to vote by the early 19-teens. Woman suffrage, as well as women running for office and holding elected positions, happened early in the West for several reasons. Because it was the Wild West, women were more accustomed to taking on more egalitarian roles compared to women in Eastern, more established states. Also, it was essentially marketing. Many Western states had gender ratios that were very askew, in some places six men to one woman, and there was a desire to attract more women to the West. Telling women that if they moved out west, they would have the right to vote enticed them to move out there. The woman's suffrage push in western states was influenced by another movement that was in full swing around the same time, the temperance movement. This was a movement that sought to outlaw the distribution and sale of alcohol. It was a movement that was mostly led by women, and it was driven by concerns over domestic violence and family breakdown on one hand, and xenophobic sentiment against recent European arrivals who were stereotyped as drunks and vagrants, on the other hand. Then there were some politicians who felt that women's suffrage would advantage them politically. In Wyoming, a popular argument for women's suffrage was that if black and Asian men were able to vote, white women should have that same right. The Democratic Party in Wyoming also felt that women's suffrage would mean that the Republicans would be removed from power, which ultimately didn't happen and Democratic support in Wyoming for women's suffrage backfired. In Utah, then the territory, both Mormons and non-Mormons believed that women's suffrage would help their side. Mormons, who still practiced polygamy at the time, felt that women's suffrage would lead to more elected officials who supported plural marriage. Non-Mormons felt that if women could vote, they would elect politicians opposed to plural marriage. This odd nexus of support led to the passage of women's suffrage in 1870 in the state. Now, it was removed in 1887 as part of a congressional act restricting polygamy in the territory, but then restored in 1896 when Utah became a state. Many women and men gave a lot of their time, energy, and they risked their well-being for the right to vote. Those sacrifices should not be minimized. Yet, like most chapters in American history, the story is often more complicated and ethically murky. The early 1900s was a period in U.S. history that was marked by a rise in racial animosity, discrimination, and violence. Lost Cause Mythology, 
a rewriting of Civil War history that casts the Confederate South as noble victims in the War of Northern Aggression was gaining a great deal of traction. The D.W. Griffith movie, The Birth of a Nation, was released in 1915. The Birth of a Nation was a silent film embracing the Lost Cause narrative that glorified the antebellum South and demonized Black Americans as sexually aggressive savages. It has the distinction of being the first film screened at the White House, and the viewing was attended by President Woodrow Wilson, a staunch segregationist. In response, lynchings of Black Americans and riots targeting Black communities increased. And the second and most dangerous iteration of the Ku Klux Klan would rise up only a few years later. Against the backdrop of this climate, the leaders in the NAWSA continued to try to distance themselves from black members and the interests of black women. The 1903 New Orleans Annual Meeting excluded black members from attendance. And during the 1913 Women's Suffrage Procession in Washington, D.C., held the day before the Wilson inauguration, black women members were told that they could not march with their delegations and would be required to march at the end of the procession. Notably, this led to a confrontation between white NAWSA leader Alice Paul and black suffragist Ida B. Wells Barnett. When a procession took place, most black suffragists marched with their delegations instead of as a segregated unit. But why was the NAWSA increasingly resistant to participation by black women on an equal playing field? The reason was that the organization felt they needed to court the support of southern states in order to achieve their goal of women's suffrage. The South was most resistant to women's suffrage as well as entrenched in white supremacy. But many white leaders of the movement believed that getting the South on board was the most expedient way to get a constitutional amendment passed by the states. There are a combination of a few different methods that can be used per the U.S. Constitution to add a new amendment to it. The most common way to have a constitutional amendment proposed and ratified is that two-thirds of both chambers of Congress vote in favor of proposing an amendment, and then legislatures in three-fourths of the states vote in favor of it. Because segregationists in the South had outsized representation, both in Congress and in the southern states, due to systematic disenfranchisement of black men, the easiest way to appeal to those states was to appeal to their interest in preserving and strengthening white supremacy. The argument some white suffragists made to politicians and activists in these states was that if white women had the franchise, they would be able to outvote the black population. Arguments like this worked in some western states such as Wyoming, so there was precedent for this, but this also meant that black women would be thrown under the bus as a result. Not that they seemed to have much of a problem with that. On June 4, 1919, Congress proposed the 19th Amendment, which stated that the right to vote could not be denied on the basis of sex. By January 1920, just months before the 19th Amendment was ratified, most states allowed women to vote in at least some elections. Eligibility varied by state, with 20 states allowing women full suffrage, meaning the right to vote in federal, state, and local elections. Only eight states barred women from voting in all elections, mostly in the South and in some mid-Atlantic states. On August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment, which would keep states from denying the vote due to sex, was ratified and added to the U.S. Constitution. This was viewed as the endgame by many women suffrage activists. But did this mean all women could vote? Of course not. In practice, the right to vote was being extended to white women, as well as women of color, in states that had not made efforts to restrict the right to vote for people of their race. The fact of the matter was that the 19th Amendment and the 15th before it didn't establish a positive right to vote, 
but a negative right, meaning that the government would be barred from restricting the vote based on race or sex, but it did not keep states from placing restrictions on the right to vote, on paper, based on other factors. In part one, I discussed restrictions states, mostly in the South, placed on black Americans, restricting their right to vote in a roundabout way. Roundabout restrictions to get around the 19th Amendment were not as common, but for example, in Washington State, U.S.-born women who married an immigrant were not allowed to vote, and after 1922, this restriction was placed on American citizen women who married an Asian immigrant specifically. But there were a lot of women who were left behind when the 19th Amendment was ratified, such as many Black, Latina, and Indigenous women and the white-led woman suffrage movement had no interest in helping them secure the vote. When black woman suffragists, such as Mary Church Terrell, reached out to white suffragists for help in securing their rights, they were rebuffed and told that the disenfranchisement of black women was a race problem rather than a sex problem, so it was beyond the scope of the movement. In other words, well, I got mine, you're on your own. Nevertheless, activists of color tirelessly fought over the next several decades so that the franchise would be extended to all women. Native Americans were allowed birthright citizenship in 1924 with the Indian Citizenship Act, or the Snyder Act, as I talked about earlier. Most Asian Americans were permitted to become citizens in 1947, and Japanese Americans in particular were allowed citizenship in 1952. For these groups, citizenship came with the right to vote, but in certain regions of the country were subject to roundabout restrictions, similar to other people of color. Black women, especially in the South, and Latino women, particularly out West, faced restrictions that kept them from voting, regardless of the 15th and 19th Amendments, into the 1960s. For women of color, Having the right to vote would give them a voice to advocate on their own behalf and gain a measure of power they could use to advance not only themselves, but their communities. Yet while they were women as well, they could not rely on Caucasian women, who were now fairly secure in their right to vote, to be allies in their fight for the franchise. The story of the women's suffrage movement in the United States and the passage of the 19th Amendment is bittersweet. It speaks to our country's diversity, but also how white supremacy has permeated so much of our history. Even the milestones that we often view as points of progress and pride. Now, does this mean that we can't celebrate or appreciate that women have the right to vote? Of course we can appreciate that. Sometimes good things can happen for terrible reasons. Does this mean that white women should feel guilty for the complex legacies of the women who came before them? No. The phrase white guilt is a term advanced by white supremacists to criticize and shame white Americans who are coming to terms with the benefit they've received from America's history and legacy of racism. When we look at history like this that is complicated, that's not a question of fault or guilt for the past. It's a matter of responsibility in the here and now. The thing is, learning the truth about the past presents opportunity in the present. So often, we think back to events of the past. I often use the example of slavery or the Holocaust or the Civil Rights Movement. But there are so many other events like this throughout history. And we look at these events and swear we would have been on the right side of history. We would have been a conductor on the Underground Railroad. We'd hide a Jewish family in our crawl space. We'd march with Dr. King. But events occur all the time now that reveal our true heart. Where we stand on police brutality, the pandemic, immigration, voting rights, the teaching of accurate history in schools, and not only that, our willingness to sit with any privilege we might have and truly listen to the voices of the marginalized, even when what they have to say makes us uncomfortable or challenges our existing viewpoints. We have opportunities in the here and now to do better.
It is up to each one of us to seize it. In the next installment of the Potstirer Podcast Voter Suppression Series, the focus will be on the Voting Rights Act of 1965, including what it did, how voting rights unfolded over time after the Act, and how the limitations built into the Act enabled it to be stripped just a few decades later. History is vitally important. Because if we don't know our past, we are destined to repeat it. Thank you so much for listening to Pastor Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirrerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, which is completely free, you'll be able to access new episodes once they've come out so you don't fall behind. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And I love to tweet, as you well know. So follow me there on Twitter at PotStirrerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. Free.